You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Katz has majored in silliness for more than 25 years. He's written for animated series that include Tasmania, Disney's Raw Tunage and Goof Troop, and more Nickelodeon projects than you can shake a stick at. He's written for the Grammy and Tony Awards, the New York Times, and the New York Daily News, just to confirm his silliness. He's created comics, trading cards, and even written lots of actual books. His latest actual book is Oops. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Well, thank you. Alan, I've got to guess that when you started out writing, maybe you were the class clown. I was the class humorist. I don't think I was the class clown. The class clown is the kid who gets in trouble. I was the kid that everybody sought for ways to get out of homework and things like that, but but not not clown. I wouldn't use the word clown. When you started writing, did you actually start sit down and write little pieces as a as a kid? And how old? When did you start this? I actually did. In fact, in Oops, which uh, which you just mentioned, I went back well, into the basement in the house where my mother had saved uh, third-grade report cards, had saved third-grade compositions, and there's actually a composition in the book, the actual handwritten by Alan Katz in 1967 composition that's a parody of Jack and the Beanstalk. Wow. And and, that's reprinted in there. What's interesting on the report card is the teacher said, uh, the the only comment was Alan must learn to express himself creatively via the written word. So I (laughs) love that, and I show it to my kids to say, you see, I wasn't always so good. As you grew up, what uh, writing inspired you? you? Before you started writing, you must have started reading. What did you read? I was a voracious reader and still am and read everything funny I could get my hands on and everything sports I could get my hands on. And in fact, uh, recently while going through that same basement, I found a copy of the Jerry Lewis Book of Magic. Not that many people would associate Jerry Lewis with magic, but uh, I found a copy that was due in 1966. And I have it in my head to go back to that library, which is 50 miles from where I live, give them a set of my books and say, here, please skip the fines. You can take this book back. I think you're going to be getting the good end of that deal. I guess so, because <laughs> even a nickel a day for uh, 40 years would be trouble. Yes. Uh, once you got out of grade school, in high school, how did you do? Well, I did fine in school, but I think... Um, and in fact, I'm still in touch with some of my high school and college teachers, wow. uh, interestingly, who remember my school career as one in which I would write funny things to try to get out of assignments for serious things. And it impressed them, so I got away with it for a lot of years. I'm not recommending that anybody listening do that, especially kids and students, but it worked for me. And presumably, you went to college, and, and tell me, what was your, we, you get out of high school and you're a smart, funny guy, what do you... I, decide to do in college? Well, I did everything I needed to in college. I majored in communications, but I would write funny things. I actually wrote for stand-up comics like Henny Youngman during college. I wrote for TV show Kids or People Too on the ABC network uh, during college and managed to uh, get a lot of life experience during college. Again, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anybody else, but I knew what path I wanted to take, and I was so dead set on that that, that I continued writing uh, despite college, I guess. Uh, how did you get a gig writing for Henny Youngman when you were in college? That's incredible. I actually met him at a fundraiser and uh, said, I'd like to write for you. And he said, okay, kid, I'll pay you $7 a joke. And I would send him 20 jokes. And uh, he would check off three or four, send me a check for three or four times $7. And then 
I never heard him do the jokes, and my parents, of course, would sit back and say, he's probably doing all 20. We were very suspect of Eddie Youngman. Uh, but I was a huge, huge fan, huge fan of Soupy Sales, too. I grew up on Soupy, and it was my great, great honor to meet him uh, several years ago and have lunch with him. And actually, I had been working for the Rosie O'Donnell show at that time and booked him on the show. And uh, that's just a small payback for, for everything he had done for me, because I think I became a comic or a comedic writer because of him. Why do you say that? Because I, every day, the improvisational, for those of who, who remember Soupy, every day was just a half hour or an hour of madness, just improvisational comedy and madness. Uh, wisecracks had probably soared way over my head in many cases, but just comedy. Also, ventriloquism. I did a lot of ventriloquism when I was a kid, and that wouldn't be that impressive on the radio, I know. But um, I used to do impromptu puppet shows and, and variety shows for after lunch every day at school. So I uh, was honing my comedic career even then. Now you're out of college. Yes. You, you've been writing for Henny Youngman. You've been writing for TV. What kind of career do you embark upon, and how do you embark upon it? Well, it's funny. When you, when you come, I grew up in Queens, and my brother became a teacher, and uh, my parents wanted me to be a teacher or go into Dad's business, which was uh, children's shoes. And I said, no, I want to be a writer. And they kind of said, nobody, nobody gets to be a writer. Everybody writes, but nobody makes a career at it. So find something to fall back on. And instead, I just kicked myself in the pants and said, okay, start writing, prove it to them. And I, in short order, I had work on Kids or People too. I had work on other TV shows, not always writing, but production work or things like that. And I said, I can do this. I think there's a way to turn, that's going to sound terrible, but turn funny into money. I think there's some way to be funny in life and also be funny as a career. And uh, I have to say I've been very privileged because it's working. How did you get your first gig in TV? You got uh, Kids Are People too during college. That's, during again, college. incredible. Well, I was writing for another uh, stand-up comic. Her name was Marilyn Sokol. She's still around. Very, very funny woman. I know her. Yeah, I've seen and, her on HBO. And she's been on HBO. She's done a lot of character voices for puppets, and she's a wildly funny person. And I had actually created an idea for This is a crazy story, but I created an idea for a sitcom. And through her, I got to some networks and uh, pitched it, and it turned out that one of them was stealing it. One of them said, okay, you're a kid, you're in college, you got nothing going on, going to take this idea. And her boyfriend at the time was a manager, and he got them to not steal it, and got me some work after that. It was a very fortuitous uh, pairing, I guess, and got me some work writing uh, industrials. I used to do funny films for Pepsi, and I still do that to, at times, funny films for corporate America, and sales meetings, and uh, and very elaborate stage productions, and and musical comedies that the public doesn't get to see, that Pepsi, if they're coming out with a new soft drink, might show their bottlers or, or truck drivers. And there's a very big market there for comedy, corporate comedy, I guess you'd call it. Wow, I never even knew it existed. A lot of people don't. And, and I also do sales promotion. I do funny TV commercials. And as a writer, it's a, you know I put words in a funny order and then uh, sell products or sell the idea of reading. I mean, that's the wonderful thing. Uh, to me about being a children's author the last eight or nine years is so many kids write to me or when I visit schools I do a lot of school visits so many kids say I never knew I liked poetry before thank you for introducing me to poetry and you know I can't get my four kids to read it but uh, either my books or any others but uh, to find out that kids are writing their own poetry or suddenly seeking poetry or seeking new ways to to creatively express themselves that means everything it really does 
tell me about the sitcom idea that your the network wanted well, to rip off. Well, the sitcom off. idea was actually, and, and you're going to think I did get ripped off, but I didn't. It was a parallel idea. It was called Benny's Fleet, and it was basically Taxi before there was Taxi. And ABC was trying to steal it at that point. And uh, actually, David Susskind, if you remember David Susskind, his production company. And they kept offering me, okay, here's $1,000, here's $2,000, we'll do it. And of course, anybody who knows the industry, $2,000 for an entire idea that became a series would not be right. Um, and then about six months later, they did it, but they proved to me that it had already been in the pipeline. On the West Coast, I was pitching on the East Coast. It's a story I haven't thought about in many years. But um, in a way, it was a springboard to other success, so I'm not, I don't look at, back at it too bitterly. Could you talk about some of the business aspects of being a writer when you've got so many projects juggling? That must be really difficult. How do you keep track of what you're doing and who's supposed to pay you? And Well, the who's supposed to pay me is something that, you know, when you have four kids to feed and, and uh, a house and a mortgage, you pretty much remember that first. Um, and everybody's very good about that. Um, in terms of projects, listen, what I get to do is I don't have to lift anything heavy. I can be alone when I do it. I've written entire books on airplanes, on the train, on the library, and in the library. Um, when I used to write for the Rosie O'Donnell show for five years, I would write her, a lot of her songs and jokes and games and all that. I get on the train at 5.30 in the morning from Connecticut, get to Rockefeller Center, and by 10 o'clock that morning, we'd written songs and jokes and games and all that to be, played, to, to be shown on the air that day. That's pressure. The idea of having two or three months to write some poems or some uh, some prose for books or trivia or whatever the project is, is a joy and a privilege. And I can't wait to sit down and, and type. And, and when kids say to me, what's your favorite book? What's Out of all your books, what's the favorite book you've written? I always say, you know what my favorite book is? The one I haven't written yet. Because I can't wait to see. Not that it's going to be the best book I've ever written. Not that it's going to change literature forever. But I just love the creative process so much that I can't wait to see what I work on tomorrow. Could you talk a little bit about writing for TV? You mentioned the, the pressure. You've also got to collaborate with people and negotiate with people. There's up and down and sideways. That must be really difficult. Well, it's difficult, but it's no more difficult than anybody who writes for a newspaper or anybody who writes for the evening news. In fact, it's probably a lot easier than anybody who writes for the evening news. My wife is a Pulitzer-nominated journalist, a wonderful journalist, who always got her facts right, but it was the pressure to turn out a newspaper every day. She used to work for business publications. The pressure, that, to me, that's pressure. If, if Rosie would come in in the morning and say, I stubbed my toe and I can hardly walk, and I wrote about that to the tune of Camelot, that's not pressure, that's comedy. And uh, please, every time she heard herself, we had weeks and weeks of songs. Um, and that was great, great, great fun, to have a blank slate every day knowing you had to fill it by 10 a.m. And there was one other writer who I collaborated with, a very talented writer, and we picked each other up, and we were never empty, and we were never blank. And it charged us up so much to do that job. Um, the last couple of years, I'd worked on the Tony Danza show, very different experience. Uh, he was a very different kind of talent and a very different kind of performer. And uh, that was a little more pressure. Could you talk about the writing? You talked about writing songs. Mm -hmm. uh, do you play an instrument? I don't play an instrument, and I'm probably tone deaf. And... Uh, What's funny is I hear it right. I know thousands of songs from Broadway, from from movies, from pop culture, from you know, from top forty. And very often I'd write a song for Rosie, and she'd say, "How does that part go?" Like uh, the song "I'm Flying" from Peter Pan. She would know "I'm Flying" and that whole thing. But the the I guess it's the bridge of the song. I don't even know where they go. Da 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 da. And I'd sing the lyrics that I'd written. She'd say, "Yeah, I still don't know how that goes. I just I can't sing." And uh, 
I think what I'm proving with, with all the songbooks I've done for kids is you don't have to know how to sing to have a good time singing because uh, teachers and kids and parents can just read the words and enjoy themselves. You must actually have the experience of having written something and getting to go home and see it broadcast on million, before millions of people on television. How does that feel? Well, it's funny. The shows were live, so I very rarely got to watch them on television except in reruns. But it was great fun. There were times, I mean, I'd, I'd written for the Grammys, as you mentioned, uh, you were kind enough to mention, and the Tony Awards, and I didn't go to those shows. So I'd hit, sit home and, and watch those. There was one joke I'd written for Rosie uh, about Cher, uh, the performer Cher, something to, something to the effect that uh, there's Cher, she's, she's so old that these days she calls everybody Sonny, which got a huge, huge laugh. It's a good, you know, good solid joke. Um, Way back when I was writing for Marilyn Sokol in 1977, in fact, the week Elvis died, I remember it clearly. Marilyn called me from the dressing room of The Tonight Show and said, quick, I need jokes about playing doctor when I was a kid. And I was visiting my parents up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and I wrote some jokes right in front of them. No computer, just hand wrote them, called them into her, no fax machine, called them into her. They heard me say the jokes over the phone to her. And then we watched The Tonight Show that night, but no VCR. I mean, these are the real old days. So we had an audio cassette player. So I still have a tape of Marilyn talking to Johnny Carson. And she would say something, the audience would laugh, and then you hear one of my parents saying, was that yours? So it's a very funny tape to listen to. Both my parents are unfortunately are no longer with us. And it's a funny tape to listen to, to check whether, you know, whether it was mine and if she was going to pay me the way Henny Youngman did. So uh, she never did, by the way. Marilyn, if you're listening, you owe me about $300. Well, I'm sure she'll be listening. Oh, yes. As a writer, mm -hmm. you have lots of gigs, but you kind of lack some of the things like, you know... Uh, uh, Don't say talent. No, no, no. <laughs> Ste steady promotion, health benefits, managing that stuff. Who does that for you? Do you do that well, yourself? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the Writers Guild, because the Rosie O'Donnell show was a Writers Guild show, if you are in the Writers Guild and you earn a certain amount, you get health benefits that are co-paid for by myself and by the, uh, by the employer. Uh, when those ran out, right now I'm working with an advertising and sales promotion company, and I do commercials for television shows. I do uh, uh, rhymes for pickle ads, things like that, and they're kind enough to help me out with health insurance, so the family is well taken care of. Now, you're writing books for children. You write, write these wonderful books of poems. There, there's kind of a long history to, to this kind of book. How does that history affect you as you sit down to write when you think back? I mean, I, I have to think back of, you know, my days of listening to Dr. Demento and Sarah Cynthia Sylvia Stout. Sure. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's funny. Um, we read an awful, uh, an awful, a great deal in, in my house, and we had never actually read much poetry. I have to say, although my wife is a wonderful poet and a very gifted poet, the only poetry perhaps in the house was serious poetry. And the fact that I'm writing things that hopefully kids will find and parents will find amusing, I was kind of starting from, from ground zero. And, of course, there's Jack Perletsky, who's, who's terrific. And, of course, there's Shel Silverstein and some other wonderful poets out there. But my voice is my voice. And uh, I purposely didn't read a lot of their work, in fact, any of their work, um, because I want to hear what I have to say. And there were poems that I wrote that were hilariously funny that didn't feel appropriate for a collection like this, and they didn't make the collection like this. Um, my number one barometer is my own kids. I have a 16-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son, and twin boys who are seven. And if they find it funny, it, then I find it funny. 
So uh, they help a lot. As a writer, when you're writing a book like this, you're writing for two audiences. You're writing for the kids who are ultimately going to read it, but chances are it's an adult who's going to pick it up and look at it first and shell out the hard-earned uh, money for that. Mm -hmm. So how does that, do you think about that when you write? Well, I'm a parent. First and foremost, I'm a parent. Before I'm a writer, I'm a parent, and I would never write anything that I wouldn't allow in my own house. Um, I think, you know, we have, a, we have a responsibility to engage kids and certainly, I've read an awful lot of books with my kids that we say, why, 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 how'd that get published? It wasn't entertaining to them. It was a chore for me to read. And, you know, when I visit schools, I learn a lot about what kids like and what teachers like. There are teachers who, I've been to schools where, where they've said, there's a song in, in Take Me Out of the Bathtub, the first songbook, uh, Stinky Stinky Diaper Change. And it's about a kid who needs a diaper change. And I don't know a kid who hasn't needed a diaper change at some point. Well, I've been to schools where they bought, I was one, in one in North Carolina, where they bought a copy, for, a hardcover copy for every student in the school and then said, you are not allowed to sing Stinky Stinky Diaper Change. And I've been to schools, uh, which is fine, and of course I abide by that. I was at a school where there was a principal in California, Southern California, principal who was a military drill sergeant. That's the only way I can describe him. And he came over to me uh, right before I read and said, Mr. Katz, you are not going to sing Stinky Stinky Diaper Change in this school. And I said, okay, sir, I understand. That's fine. He said, because I am. And he stood on the stage and he sang Stinky Stinky Diaper Change in a very gruff, commanding presence. And the teachers all came and said he'd never done anything like that in his life. And it humanized him in this wonderful way. And they all thanked me for breaking his facade, for breaking, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't done anything except, you know, agree not to sing it so he could. But uh, there's different different reactions to these songs. There's nothing in there that's, that's hopefully not. Uh, hopefully, there's nothing in there that's offensive or rude or wrong or going to cause kids to skip homework or you know run away from home or anything like that. Um, there, it's all good-natured fun, as far as I'm concerned. As you um, write these books in, in these poems, there's a lot of poems in this book. There's a hundred poems. Yes, a uh, hundred poems. Actually, a little more. Yeah. Uh, how do you you know figure out the the length of these poems and, and know sequence them so that they they work right so that they read is it's a book that you that an adult can read with joy in a couple of hours it, it's really fun well thank you i think you know it's funny they say something like the way you you do a marble sculpture sculpture is you chip away at a piece of marble until it looks like something you're happy with and that's kind of the way i write the poems there are times i've i've been moments away from handing in a poem and i say wait a minute i thought of a better way to end it or a funnier way or new lines to put in and it's done when it looks right and it tastes right and it sounds right and it and it makes me laugh and uh i don't know that there's a precise science to it if there is i'd like to study it now you talked that your main audience your test reading audience mm -hmm. is actually your children then. my children uh specifically my two younger ones my two older ones are are just turning the corner of where they don't want me around at all <laughs> No, mine, that's not true. Mine have, have t turned that corner, mm -hmm. driven up the street, gotten on trains and buses. Nice. Actually, my daughter, who, who's just turning 16, as I said, uh, has told me, has forbidden me to mention her in any of the books from now on. So the very next book is dedicated with love to my sons, Nathan, David, and Andrew, and with love to my daughter, Simone, even though she doesn't want to be mentioned in this dedication. So uh, <laughs> I think the best way to get me to do something or to not do something is to tell me to do it. I. It's a really... One of... 
children's literature is probably the only growth market right now in publishing, mm-hmm. if, if indeed it is. I, I, I'm not sure. Could you talk about the, just the environment of, of, that you're working in? It's not like writing novels or any other thing out well, there. Well, I'm extraordinarily fortunate because I, m- most of my books have been with the same editor at the same publisher uh, going on about 10 years. And she has, uh, her name is Emma Dryden at Michael Derry Books, and she has shepherded my process and helped me through it. Actually, the poetry book was her idea. And uh, after what will be eight or nine songbooks, she said to me, uh, do you think you could write poetry? She and, and uh, Rick Richter, who heads up the division. And I said, you know what? I don't think I can. I've never paid a, a shred of, of attention to poetry. And she said, well, try. And I said, I don't think I can. And she said, do me a favor and try. Do yourself a favor and try. And I wrote eight or ten samples, and I had a blast doing it. And she said, you see, you can do it. And they were kind enough to turn that into Oops, um, which is just out. And uh, I just finished 100 poems for the sequel, which will be called Uh Uh-Oh, both illustrated by the fantastic Ed Korn from uh, New Yorker fame, and could not be more pleased with how it turned out and more pleased with. And that's a a lesson that I learned that I'm imparting to kids now as I speak at schools about Oops, is if somebody says, try something, and you say, I can't do that, don't leave it there. Absolutely go back in and say, let me try. And if I hadn't been able to do it, you wouldn't be seeing this book now and you wouldn't be talking to me right now. So I'm grateful to Emma for uh, for giving me that one more push that said, try it, see if you can do it. The the illustrations in all your books and all the art direction and layout is really gorgeous. Extraordinary, thank you. Uh, could you talk about the pro- uh, collaborating with artists? I mean, did, do, did Ed come up with drawings that inspired uh, your... Uh, poems or have any In this drawn? case, the words came first. And in fact, in all cases uh, with my books, the words have come first. Uh, David Catro, who's done dozens of, of fantastic books, uh, I've been lucky enough to do 10 books with him now, or, or it will be 10 by the time everything we're working on is done. Um, he lives in Ohio. I live in Connecticut. We didn't speak the whole time we were working on the first two books. We actually met at an award ceremony at the Javits Center in New York where we found out we lost the Book of the Year award. Uh, so I shook his hand and said, nice to meet you, great work, and then we lost and then we parted ways. I speak to him all the time now, and he's a wonderfully uh, gifted and uh, talented uh, illustrator. Same thing with Ed Corn. We didn't meet until after the book was done. We kind of had a celebration lunch once it was done. He lives in Vermont. Um, I know a lot of illustrators and authors work together side by side. That hasn't been my experience. And uh, I do what I do. They do what they do, and they certainly do it well. And then Emma and the, her designers at Simon & Schuster turn it into books that, oh boy, am I proud of them. Uh, now that you're a poet, you're hanging out with poets, aren't you? Well, I am. I've been invited, happily, I've been invited to poetry blasts around the country, uh, two or three of them so far, and I continue to get invited to them. And in a way, it, it's funny because they're all serious or mostly serious poets with very emotional um, personal stories to tell in in verse, and here I am with some of the poems from Oops. You know things like, "The wind is blowing through the trees. The wind is blowing on my knees. The wind is blowing its spring dance. It tells me I forgot my pants," which is not exactly the same thing as as growing up an impoverished child. And and I have such great respect for those poets, and and probably um, changed the tone of those poetry blasts in a way that it takes a while to get back to uh, to the real tone. Uh, you and you've also been attending some conventions. I have. I've been asked to uh, to speak to librarians in Texas and South Carolina. Um, I was just asked to speak at Columbia, which is uh, 
which is unbelievable. And, and uh, the New York Public Library has invited me. I take the responsibility of, uh, of helping represent the children's book industry and, and poetry and humor very seriously. And anything I can do to reach kids or reach those who help kids read uh, to, to do it even a little bit better, I'm, I'm thrilled to do. Just to be a small part of that is so exciting. Could you tell me about your recent experience at the ALA meeting? Well, sure. Um, it, I, <laughs> it's a kind of a strange story, but uh, I was in Washington. There were 3,000 librarians and book executives in attendance. And Susan Patrone, a wonderfully gifted author who had written The Higher Power of Lucky, uh, a book that had received both tremendous critical praise as well as some consternation because she used the word scrotum in the book uh, in what I guess some people considered a gratuitous fashion, but she won the award for Book of the Year and made a speech, a 45-minute impassioned speech that was as wonderful as anything I've ever ever heard. Many standing ovations. It was really a dramatic, wonderfully heartfelt speech. And the next day, I was at a poetry blast uh, for about 300 librarians, again, among eight or nine very serious, very well-respected, wonderful po poets. And they introduced me by saying that I was the winner of the Book Sense Book of the Year Award for 2002, which, as I mentioned before, Dave Catro and I were nominated, but we did not win. So I took the podium, ready to read some poems from Oops and probably change the mood with some humor. And I took a chance, and I said, you know, I didn't win that award, but speaking of awards, how about Susan Patron last night? And the entire audience applauded uh, very enthusiastically. And I said, you know, when she finished speaking last night, I, I simply couldn't move. I was paralyzed with, with just an impression of what she talked about, our responsibility to children, and the use of words. She had said something about a fourth grader saying to her that if they use the word scrotum, if they ban that book because it has the word scrotum in it, then they have to ban all books because the dictionary has scrotum in it too, things like that. So I said, uh, if you don't mind, I, I actually sat down and wrote a poem. While the busboys and, and waiters were clearing the table last night, I sat there transfixed and wrote a poem, Do You Mind If I Share It With You? And everyone sat up as if this was going to be a really auspicious moment. And I took out a card and I said, Here are some poems. And I wrote them. Scrotum, 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 scrotum. And the place just erupted with laughter. It was just this release. Because everyone had been in the room for about two hours listening to wonderful poetry, but serious poetry. And it was just this shocking, uh, bold release. And thunderous applause for me too and then everything I read from Oops after that was very well received and as a result I've been invited to, a, to speak at a lot of different conferences and uh, it kind of uh, you know somewhat put me on a map that I didn't know there was a map to there to begin with so uh, very excited by that. You write really well about subjects that interest children but also in a manner that interests adults as well and one of the things I think that's interesting uh, is what you do as a, have to do as a writer to entertain children, it's not easy because you can't just resort to a really gross joke on, or foul language. No, of course not. So uh, you write about, like, for example, the absurdities that adults accept without question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I, I think uh, my wife would agree that I probably am still a six-year-old child in many ways. And, and I'm, I'm definitely on the side of the kids when it comes to, you know, if, if she comes in the room and says, come on, it's time for bed, and they say, oh, come on, can't we watch for five more minutes? I'm the one whining, oh, can't they watch for five more minutes? I'm definitely uh, still an immature brat. No, not at all. But um, I just love the child experience, and, and being a parent is so amazing. And sharing 
the, the craziness of their days. And, and, you know, listen, any writer is an, is an observer. And I guess what I do is I see their behavior. I mean, my son recently, do I have time for a very quick funny story? Oh, sure. My son was on a school bus, 13, he was 12 then, and he had a ladybug. Uh, he found a ladybug. We don't have any pets. We're not going to have any pets because my wife is allergic. And we've just said we're not going to be a pet family. But he found a ladybug. And he said, this ladybug is my new pet. Mom won't be allergic. Dad won't mind. I'm bringing this ladybug home. And he was walking home with it, treating it very well. He's a very gentle, kind kid. And it flew away, as a ladybug is bound to do, not knowing it's his pet. He went home, and I swear this is true, he went home and made posters that said, Lost, Ladybug. Six dots, cute, $250 reward, call Andrew and put our phone number on it, and plastered the neighborhood with it. Now, as a father who's both incredulous that he would do this, but proud as can be by that creativity, I mean, I'm turning that into a book now. Dave Cato and I have talked about turning that into a book because it's that silly that a kid would, you know, I said to him when I got home, I said, what are you thinking with that? People are going to call and come by with a ladybug and say, where's my $250? And he said, I'll say that's not it. So that became his creative exercise for the day and surrounded by that kind of imagination. I mean, one of my sons, one of the twins, only transports himself around the house via cartwheel. If I say, do me a favor, get the remote, he does three cartwheels, gets the remote, cartwheels back. How am I going to grow up and be an adult author surrounded by that kind of humor? Could you talk about making, putting some morals in, into your poems? Because they're there. They're not. And how do you do approach that without like hitting kids over the head with a stick? Well, I, you know, you're right. You don't hit kids over the head with a stick. And I, and I think there's certain behavior the kids know is wrong. If I can underscore that or behavior that's right and I can underscore that, um, and stick in a poem. I mean, uh, there are some poems in the sequel to Oops called, that I mentioned is called Oh, about giving to charity, about doing good, a little more heartfelt, um, still humor, um, still hopefully something that'll tickle them, but make them think a little more too. Um, you know, if I can get a kid to clean his room, my work is done. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> um, you know, you've written a lot for adult programs and programming, mm -hmm. and that's an entirely different set of words than the words you use in, in oops. Could you talk about just the, the word choice and do you, how, how much you have to think about that and, and does it come naturally to you or do you, just, do you have I, a list? I think it comes naturally and let's face it, most of what I've written for is family friendly anyway. I mean, certainly the Rosie O'Donnell show was a family friendly show. There was many kids watching it as adults or, or it was a show that parents felt comfortable um, watching with their kids. Um, likewise, I guess most of the shows I've written Saturday morning cartoons, I've written for game shows. Um, I think, you know, I know what words not to use and I know what words to use and it's a matter of putting in the right order. And if parents get upset because there's a poem or a song or something about passing gas, if you will, well, everyone does it. And if they don't, or if they don't want to talk about it, uh, there are many other books out there to be sure, but boy, a, a kid is a kid. And, you know, if it, if it interests them because it's just slightly on the level that they already talk about, you know, I, I say more power to everybody. One of the things I like about the poems in Oops is that you use a lot of natural language. Mm -hmm. it, it seems more conversational than most, than most children's poetry. Oh, that's interesting. Well, thank you. There are times I've made up words. I mean, there's, there's one poem that seems to be a favorite in schools already. Um, 
Uh, it's called the shower. I'm going to wash behind each ear because I use them both to hear. I'm going to wash behind. Uh, I'm going to wash. My. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, let's, let's look it up. <laughs> no, I have it here. Alan, and it's, boy, um, boy, is this a good-looking book? That is a good-looking um, book. Boy, the New Yorker. Uh, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going to wash behind each ear because I use them both to hear. I'm going to wash around my nose because it breathes. It also blows. But I won't wash my belly button because, you see, it don't do nothing. Now, that's a surprise ending that kids, you know, kids get. And listen, I don't think they're going to walk around saying, I got nothing the rest of my life. They're not going to talk like that, but they get it. They, they're in the joke. And the best thing you can do to a kid is include them in the joke. Not tell them a joke, but include them and, and give their understanding something. It's empowering them. As a kids writer, you also get to talk about lots of things that adults don't like to talk about. And, well, and that must be fun. <laughs> that's probably true. Listen, there's, you know, I have, as I said before about about schools, I have the utmost respect for educators and teachers and the rules. And when I'm, I've been invited to, I don't know, 20 or 30 schools in the past year to speak to, to kids. And there are some schools that are happy to discuss any aspect of my career and there are some who say don't do there's a book called don't say that word in which there isn't a single bad word but if you read it and listen carefully you're going to think of a lot of the words that parents probably don't want kids to say but happily it's been reviewed as a great book to start a dialogue with kids about what words are not appropriate and you know a word like toilet well toilet doesn't belong in most conversations but it's not a bad word so, I mean, there were rhymes in there like, Mom says, what happened in school today? And the kid says, Michael says, um, in art, everybody got inky, but Mom, that was only the start. Because Richie then made the room stinky by blasting a really big, and before he can say what rhymes would start, Mom yells, don't say that word. And it goes on like that with a word that would rhyme with sugar, and a word that would rhyme with soil it. And, and if the kids are listening carefully, they're thinking the word, and I get to say, don't say that word, and they understand that those are the words not to say. Well, at the end, Mom says, today was a sea of great dramas. I hope there are calm days ahead. Run along, put on your pajamas. It's late, and you should be in. And before she can say bed, he yells, don't say that word. So it has a happy, nice ending. And, you know, I was at a school yesterday, a wonderful school, where not one kid yelled one bad word. The entire time I got to the end and they took great delight in knowing the word and saying, don't say that word. It was a fantastic moment because I think the message was clear, both by what I prefaced it with and ended it with saying, you know what those words are. My message is don't say them. Is it better never to discuss it? Maybe. But is it better to entertain them, help them think creatively, help them read a book? And they left with a pretty good message. As a person writing these kind of paper things with pages in them mm -hmm. and boards and all that stuff and words pressed on the pages, you got some pretty hefty competition. Uh, you know, Halo 3, uh, the latest DVD from the Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. They're as not on rockers yet. You've got uh, movies, TV. How do you compete with these things? Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's where the parents come in. That's where parents say, I want to enrich your life with something that has paper and printed and you can take it with you and it doesn't strain your eyes and it's going to make you think. And hopefully parents see the value in books. I mean, I was in a, in a store recently in a pharmacy in Connecticut uh, where we live 
And my son said, can I get a book? And I very loudly said, no, you have a book at home. Why aren't you watching more TV? And he laughed, and I laughed, and the clerk, who we've known for years, laughed. And apparently after we left, there were two customers who were horrified. They were like, who was that man? We must report him to the authorities. Not, not report him to the authorities, but he explained that I was, you know, being silly and facetious. Listen, kids are going to read because they like to read and because they have to read. They're going to play video games because that's what everybody does. Um, shouldn't, should we get away, do away with video games and the Internet and all that? Absolutely not. But there's time for reading, and if we give them things kids want to read, they'll read. You know, I was thinking, you've written a lot of books mm -hmm. and a lot of poems and a lot of songs. Uh, how do you avoid self-plagiarizing? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think if I can keep writing the same book over and over and over and people don't realize it and keep buying it, what's wrong with that? No, I'm, I'm absolutely kidding. Um, you know what? I, I think I've taken... My work has changed over the years, and... There are things in the first books that, now that I see them, and now that I sing them in front of kids and, and hear kids sing them, that I realize how, where my work has gone. And I'm, poetry is certainly new to me. There's a picture book coming out next year that's very different than anything I've ever done. Uh, over the next six months or so, I'm going to try to write a chapter book. And I'm just going to try to stay creative and reinvent myself as, as much as possible. Um, kids expect, when they, when they read Take Me Out of the Bathtub, I'm still here in the bathtub. Are you quite polite? Where do they hide my presence? Those are the silly dilly songbooks. Um, on top of the potty is coming out in a couple of weeks. Oddly enough, it's a potty training songbook. Um, and yes, I'll be delighted to sing one of those if you want. Um, please, please. Okay. If you gotta go do poopy, please don't wait. If you gotta go do poopy, potty's great. Uncle Sidney and Aunt Dottie always, always use the potty, although not at the same time. They alternate. If you gotta go do pee pee potty chair. If you gotta go do pee pee potty's there. You will get real good with practice. And the happy, happy fact is you could trade your diapers in for underwear. That's epic. I mean, I think that's epic. But that is a book, oddly enough, that second, third, and fourth grade teachers are clamoring for because it's funny and it rhymes and it's poetry and kids love the songs. The fact that they're already potty trained. And by the way, that's coming out March 25th. So if you have kids who are not potty trained, tell them to wait. It's that, it's that good. But... Kids who have no interest in the subject of potty training are still interested in that book. The one after that, though, I was going to say is Smelly Locker to the tune of Frere Jacques, and it's Silly Dilly School Songs. And that one's got, you know, to the extent that there's any buzz or heat about around these books, because kids go to school. Kids understand the subjects about needing a hall pass for the school lunch lady, or recess, or waiting till homework, or watching for the bell to ring, or taking a test. These are all things I remember from school. These are all things I hear my kids talk about and other students who I visit and meet with at schools. So that book is done. Can't wait for it to come out. So there is kind of a following for these books, which I'm very appreciative. Could you talk about a little bit about touring? You, you seem to have a lot of fun touring, and you, I think you have more opportunities to have fun on a book tour than the average author. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I, I've been visiting schools uh, right now in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I walk in, and very often they serenade me. The entire, think about that, the entire, I mean, if, if you know, J.K. Rowling walked into a school, not everybody's going to recite the entire Harry Potter book at her. But I stand there, and they say, ladies and gentlemen, you know, boys and girls, please meet Alan Katz. And before I can even say hello, they've sung three or four songs of mine by memory. And that's powerful. That means an awful lot to me. And I'm consistently blown away by that. It just, it feels so great. And when I share new work with them or share new ideas or I have a trivia set, um, I did a set of uh, 
a trivia, eight different trivia sets for kids last year called That's Right, That's Wrong. And the whole notion of That's Right, That's Wrong is if I say to them, what color is a stop sign, red or yellow? If they say red, they'd be right. Anywhere else, they'd get points. That's not how you play That's Right, That's Wrong. For That's Right, That's Wrong, you only get points for giving me the wrong answer. So it's a little subversive. So if I say, where is the White House, Washington, D.C. or Miami, Florida, if you say Miami, Florida, I say that's right, that's wrong for 10 points. And of course, on the back of the card is the fact saying it's really in Washington, D.C. and it opened in such and such year. Well, think about the freedom of that for kids, because the worst thing that can happen is they take a chance and get it right. And I say to them, no points for you. I'm sorry, you're correct. It's hilarious. So they're learning that way. The teachers, I, I was at a school last year where when I described how to play, the principal said, that is the worst idea I've heard in my life. And we played three or four questions, and she turned back to that same person and said, that is the best idea I've heard in my life. I swear that was true. So I've written 6,000 trivia questions. And, you know, if I say, for example, how many bathrooms are there in the White House, 15 or 35, do you know? Uh, I have I want no the wrong idea. answer. <laughs> uh, 740. No, 15 or 35? Uh, 15. 15 is the wrong answer. You would get the points because, in fact, there are 35. So you learned something, but I tricked you into giving me the wrong answer, so you got the right answer. So it's, anyway, so that's the kind of thing where when I visit a school, kids are charged up about learning or charged up about poetry. And when I leave, uh, I left a school yesterday uh, in, in San Jose. They were all writing poems. They were following me out the door saying, listen to what I just wrote. And that, how much better can an author feel than to inspire kids instantly? So they say, I never, I mean, parents said to me the other night at a nighttime event, I never knew writing a poem was so easy. We're going to do it tonight. How much better can an author feel than to hear that? We've been speaking with Alan Katz. His new book is Oops. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. Could you read a couple of poems for me? Sure. We'll put those kind of, intersperse them. This is, what a, sure. you are great. Oh, well, thank you. That's a, what fun. Thank you. Um, this is called Real Life Soap Opera. My sister was fascinated by the underwater scene. She asked, when did we get a round TV? I said, you're watching the washing machine. Mom got a new car, so no drinks in the back, no markers, no crayons, and no crunchy snack. No ice cream, no pudding, no putty, no clay, no feet on the seats, and no silly horse play. No toys filled with liquid, and nothing with chalk. Good luck with the car, Mom, but I'd rather walk. And then I think my favorite poem in the book. Mommy said no, and then I asked Dad. Daddy said yes, now Mommy is mad. So Daddy said no, and Mommy agreed. Them working together is the last thing I need. And this is one where the entire student body, when I visit a school, the entire student body proves to me that they can rhyme and that they're poets. Because I read, the kids all call me Tattletail, a blabbing, crabbing creature. And if they do it one more time, I'm going to tell the teacher. And they all yell out, I'm going to tell the teacher. Uh, let's see if there's one more. This one, too, I played with words. They guess along, and I love that. I wish I could accordion a really good accordion. Each time I'd play accordion... The people would applaud Ian. Or someday I could be an ist, a famous solo pianist. Or maybe play a panica, a beautiful harmonica. Until then, I'm afraid i I'll have to play the radio. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.